0: And because of the work of Christ, we can come to him in prayer. Would you join me as we do that? Oh, God, we come before you this morning in awe of who you are. You have a great care for your people that puts our minds and our hearts at ease. For you love your people with the love of a father. And we can trust that whatever we encounter in this life is because of you no matter what change is before us, you do not change. Time passes us us by, we grow old, we tire, we need rest, we encounter disease and death, but Lord, you do not change, for you are outside of time and you do not experience these things, you do not grow old, you do not tire and you do not become sick. And because of that, you faithfully preserve us in your love. You preserve us in your love. Lord, forgive us for for loving the comforts of this world more than we love you. We fear losing our peace and our security. And while we long for it and, and look for it, we confess that we will go to great lengths on our own to find it. Lord, we fail to find our peace in you consistently. We confess that we are are quick to compromise what you have called us to in the name of peace. In our desire to obey you, we cling to what will not save us. Give us hearts that long for you and the grace that you have given to us. Thank you for not abandoning us in this. Thank you for faithfully caring for us, for caring for us when we don't think we need you. Our hearts are filled with gratitude that you are a God who doesn't change, and we can live willingly under your good rule in our lives. We are also grateful that we are not alone in this city. We thank you for like-minded churches in Salem. This morning, we thank you for Bethany Baptist Church and, and the elders there. This morning, we pray for Associate Pastor Casey Lute, as he is away on sabbatical. Thank you for giving him many years of faithful service in that church. We pray that his time away on sabbatical would be refreshing. That you, Lord, would energize him to to be faithful for many more years in ministry and in faithfulness towards you and your people. We pray for his wife and children, that they too would feel a renewed sense of purpose as they love that church uh, there in South Salem. We pray also this morning for us. Lord, we pray for those in our church this morning who are are either suffering or have family who is suffering from acute uh, uh, illness. Lord, diseases rob us of our health and our life, and they give us a great sense of uncertainty. This world is not our home, we are guaranteed no escape from the pain in this life, and we mourn the loss of health that we are continually faced with and that our families are continually faced with. As, as, as we uh, are around them, Lord, and as we are, are surrounded by, by uh, our, our families, Lord, we, may we not waste these times. Cause our hearts to tur- turn towards you and to turn towards others as we press into what you have given us. May we find comfort in the community of believers that you have placed around us. And ultimately, Lord, we ask that you would heal from those who are suffering from health issues. For you can do this. You are the great healer. We pray that no matter what, that we would live with a peace that whatever happens, that whatever takes place, that you have graciously ordained it and may we exemplify a peace that passes understanding we also pray for the word this morning lord may it uh, encourage us equip us and convict us where necessary thank you for all that you're doing amen
1: amen thanks nick you can have a seat open up your bibles to revelation 13 In a Charlie Brown comic strip from 1961, the character Linus stated a rule of etiquette that has since become very popularly known. There are three things, he says, that I've learned never to discuss with people. Religion, politics, and the great pumpkin. What a wise man. What he was stating was a well-known idea that had been around since as far back as 1840. Never discuss religion or politics in polite company. Well, this morning, I am knowingly going to break this rule of etiquette. So either I am impolite or I'm in impolite company. You decide. (laughs) Now, all joking aside, we're about to step into Revelation chapter 13. And this chapter carries more baggage with it than perhaps any other Chapter in Revelation. For it is in this chapter that the infamous mark of the beast is described, which for many, especially those who grew up from the 1970s onward, conjures up ideas of barcodes stamped on your forehead and microchips under the skin. Now, as we will hopefully see over the next two weeks, the truth that we will receive with proper exposition of the text is one that, in my opinion, is far more weighty and based not in futuristic science fiction, but in historical evidence and truth. It is weightier because it takes something that can be fictionalized and turned into an almost cartoon-like image, and it brings it down to where we live in reality. It makes it far more understandable. Properly interpreting this section makes us realize the spiritual battle that we exist in every day and shows us the necessity of staying aware and using our discernment with the filter of God's Word properly interpreted to stand firm in our allegiance to Christ alone. I want to prepare you for what we will look at this morning. In the first 10 verses of chapter 13, we will see the reality of the state in comparison with what God put in place as the institution of human government. Now, when I say the word state... I am particularly referring to this definition, a nation, kingdom, or territory that is an organized political community under one government. I am referring to nation states and the governmental powers that are derived from them. In other words, the entity of the state. So I'm not specifically talking about Oregon, I'm talking about nation states. Now, the reason I want to prepare you is that we are just emerging from a a two-and-a-half-year period where politics has been even more of a dividing force in society than I would say probably in my lifetime, as well as within the church. The church is getting slain and cut down big time because of politics. And so there are things we will look at in Revelation 13 and things we will look at as an application that may hit some nerves. That's why you don't discuss politics, and religion in polite company. But I want to ask all of you to spend a moment in silent prayer and ask the Lord by his spirit to soften your own heart so that you might hear his word. And I will do the same and ask the Lord to speak his word through me and limit my own opinions so that his gospel truth alone might stand. So let's take a moment, close our eyes here in silent prayer to do just that. Lord, we pray that your word would convict all of us in this intertwining of faith and politics. Bring us all from our starting positions of political philosophy under the sovereign authority of your word and spirit this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we join up with our text this morning after finishing with the words from chapter 12 in the ESV, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, if you have an NASB, you will see this verse as part of verse 1 of chapter 13. And some of your translations or some of your footnotes will also show the textual variant that says it may actually be John stating, I stood rather than the dragon stood. So there are possible differences there. But in any of those cases, John the Revelator is taking us from this heavenly warfare scene that was painted in chapter 12, And he is helping us to step into a more detailed view of how the dragon is going to enter into this warfare with the saints that was promised in all three views of chapter 12. Our text now will be a different viewpoint, a recapitulation, if you will, of chapter 12. So we've been looking at this idea of warfare from so many different views. And so the dragon goes and stands on the sands of the sea. Now, for the Jews, this switched their context immediately to understand the Gentile nations. The dragon is about to interact with the Gentile nations, the sands of the sea, and enlist them for his purposes. And it is here that John gives us a cautionary tale about the devil and the dominion of the state. The devil and the dominion of the state. Let's go ahead and read our text now from Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10, so we can unpack it. And he stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems, or crowns, on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is the word of the Lord. What we see first in verses 1 through 3 is the beastly state as the demonically empowered agent of the dragon. Can I get an amen? amen? The beastly state as the demonically empowered agent of the dragon. First, we see the description of this beast. Even the word beast is insightful in and of itself because the word in the Greek and its Uh, corresponding Hebrew word, means some kind of four-footed animal. But the implication is that it's a dangerous animal. It's a predator. And therefore, it's in stark contrast to the gentle lamb that we follow as Christians, the lamb that was slain, that we have seen throughout Revelation. Now, this suggests to us that the following text and the following few chapters will be painting the stark difference between the beast and his followers, and the lamb, and his followers. And not only is it a contrast, but we will see the whole strategy of the dragon. The chaos monster, the adversary, the slanderer, he wants to deceive the earth dwellers with a counterfeit authority and a counterfeit savior. A counterfeit king and a counterfeit Christ. Remember that Satan is wise. He's been doing this for many, many years. I should say smart, not wise, only God is wise. But he's smart, he's been doing this for many, many years. And so why would he show up in red pajamas with a pitchfork? He's much more subversive than that. And so his entire strategy is to provide a counterfeit authority, a counterfeit king, and a counterfeit savior, a counterfeit Christ. The description of the beast is almost stomach-churning, if it were to be taken literally. It is meant to evoke in us a disgust and a desire to turn away quickly. A combination of characteristics should bring to mind the book of Daniel, specifically chapter seven, a chapter that most likely in your Bibles has the header, the vision of the four beasts. Would you keep your finger here in Revelation 13 and turn with me to Daniel chapter seven, and let's take a look at Daniel's view and vision of the beasts. Let's compare it with our text as we go through it. Take a look at Daniel 7.1. Love to hear those pages turning. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Again, this idea of the sea is the Gentile nations. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar becoming a wild beast and then having his humanity restored. This is speaking of Babylon. And behold, another beast, the second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the rest of the beasts that was before it, and it had ten horns." Now, notice the similarities here with our passage in Revelation 13. The beast comes out of the sea, which symbolically to the Jews has always meant the place of chaos and corresponds with the Gentile nations, which are known for their idolatry and adversarial stance against the one true and living God, the God of the Jews. Now, it too has ten horns, and remember that the horns, in uh, biblical symbolism, speak of power and authority. And 10 is a number of wholeness and completeness, not in a good sense, but just the fullness. In this case, it is a bad completeness, for this monster symbolizes the entirety of the governmental entity that exists in the world as the state through all time and in all places. And the seven heads use a number that speaks to the completeness as well in our text from Revelation 13. It therefore stands for all the various heads of state throughout time and space in the Gentile world, and the ten diadems, or crowns, speak to the seemingly complete authority that this beast holds in the world. Lastly, notice that this beast is given a mouth to speak, quote, great things. Now, in the Hebrew, the word behind this is rav-rav. Everybody say rav-rav. In our text in Revelation 13, and here, this idea of rav means chief, chief. Now, things in uh, Hebrew, the duplication, when you hear a word twice, rav, and then rav again, it means emphasis. So an emphasis on chief. In other words, this mouth blasphemes God by speaking as though it has the authority to lead the world. It is the chief of great boasts. And that's how the NASB captures it. That the mouth of the beast in uh, Revelation 13 and the mouths of the beasts here, they speak great boasts against God. Notice also the differences, and these are key. Whenever you see scripture use itself as symbolism, a picture from earlier in the Bible, but then adjust it slightly, hermeneutically what that teaches us is that something is being communicated in that difference. We have to understand it. The beast in Revelation 13 is not four separate beasts, but it is a conglomeration of the four that we see here in Daniel. It is like a leopard, like a bear, and like a lion, but notice what is not mentioned. The horrific fourth beast that is too terrible to fully understand in Daniel 7. There is no animal it can be fully attached to in symbolism. Now, you can go back to our sermon about Daniel 7 and hear the details there, but typically, this is believed to be picturing here in Daniel 7 Babylon, then the Medo Persian Empire, then Greece, and then the fourth was the Roman Empire. That stretched throughout the known world at the time, and it was known as unstoppable, as if it were teeth made of iron that devoured the world. For the original audience, going back to Revelation 13, and thinking about this idea of the beast, go ahead and go back to Revelation 13 in your Bible. For these first century Christians who were the original audience, who felt powerless under the onslaught and persecution from Rome this most likely would have really resonated. Yeah, I feel like I am in the the jaws of the beast. They felt as if they were under the thumb of the fourth beast from Daniel. And this was true. They were under the power of Rome. But the truths put forward by this idea of this conglomeration of beasts that creates one whole beast in Revelation 13, it's even more timeless than that implication there in the first century. Because if we look at any world power, any world power that exists, including our own here in the United States, they are a culmination of all the empires that have preceded them, all of the idolatrous, rebellious empires that preceded them. The English empire from which we came came out of Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman, and French influences, all previous kingdoms that existed. The United States came out of all of these previous empires and the English empire as well. So the state, these entities, have a habit of carrying on this beastly role. They devour those before them and create a new grotesque beast. John points this out in his use of the diadems to speak of the role of authority. In verse 2, the dragon is shown to be the causal force behind this power of the state. For behind any and every earthly nation state and its government is a satanic force, even that of the government of the United States of America, regardless of which party is in power at any given time. Now, I recognize that this is a heavy statement, and some of you who may not know me well think that this might be unpatriotic. It is simply the truth of the Bible. But I know this to be true because the biblical theology surrounding human government tells us so. Let me take you through that idea and the biblical theology around government at a high-level level summary, and a parenthetical context to Revelation 13. So pause, if you will, in your mind, Revelation 13, and then we'll come back to it. We're going to tie it back in here in a moment. The idea of human government originates in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were called to be God's sub-regents over all creation. In effect, leading creation as priests and royalty to proclaim the sovereign reign of the creator God. Now obviously, that did not go well, did it? As our first parents, Adam and Eve, handed over their authority, the authority that had been given them by God, to the serpent and submitted themselves in allegiance to his authority rather than to God's. And this was the initiation for all creation to fall into original sin, rebellious to its creator. From that day, all creation has been yearning for a human king to restore it to its true allegiance to its creator. Now, in the meantime, however, God's common grace provided the means by which humanity could govern itself even in its fallen position. Theologians commonly agree that the institution of what we know as government was put in place when God gave mankind the power to hold one another accountable for the taking of a life. God gave us the death penalty, which we have since said is below us. Take a look at Genesis 9, 5 through 6 on the screen. And if your life, uh, uh, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in His own image. Friends, in Genesis nine, this is giving the state, the government, the power of what's called the sword, the power of punishment. This institution of the authority of the sword was part of God's covenant with Noah, and it was the initiation of governmental authority in the earth. Genesis further paints this picture as it moves from the story of Noah in Genesis 9 to recount the descendants of Noah and how nations began to be formed in Genesis 10, which is commonly called the table of nations or nation-states. All of this culminates in the perverse marriage of the state, the governmental power, being connected to a form of religious worship seen in the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. There, the most powerful nation-state the world had ever known to that point, Babylon, led by a leader named Nimrod that was an earthly manifestation of the adversary's rebellion against God, it committed such acts of treason and heresy that God had to disband that nation-state and minimize their power by confusing their languages. And thus you have the biblical idiom we will see even in Revelation 13 of various tribes, peoples, languages, and nations. Are you with me so far? It was from this perverse sea of chaos and rebellion that God first showed his grace to his covenant people by calling Abram, later Abraham, to leave his people and nation and idolatrous religion to become his own prized possession. From Abraham come God's covenant people and eventually the Messiah in Jesus who would bring forth his own kingdom with God enthroned at the center. Now, this biblical theology is so important to understand because it helps us make sense of the seeming paradox of Scripture's commands regarding earthly nation-states and governments and Christians' interaction with them. For example, the 1 Peter 2 passage we read earlier seems contradictory Because it first lays out the case that we have allegiance solely to Jesus as his priests and people. But then we are told in 1 Peter 2, 12 through 13 this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Then he says what some of those good deeds are. He starts to tell you. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Notice that? We're supposed to honor the emperor. Romans 13 is another example. In Romans 13, 1 through 2, it says this. Let every person be subject, that means submitted to, the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So we are clearly told to be subject or submitted to every governing authority. Why? Because its origin is from God. There is no authority except from God. God is the source of healthy, godly, holy authority that operates for the good of the subjects over which it sits. But friends, Paul is providing this because the church in Rome had disregarded the beginning point that government is a common grace gift of God. They had jumped all the way to the place of dismissing the government's authority altogether out of hand because their only authority was Christ. And so Paul is saying, no guys, this is not where you start. Paul and Peter are stating clearly that part of following Christ is to begin at the point of honoring the authorities he has put in place. Until such time... As those authorities overstep their bounds and institute laws that go against God's ultimate divine law. When they step out of line, things change. Then it is clear that they are not recognizing their need in those moments to submit to God. And they are instead submitting to the dragon. The adversary of God. They are becoming subhuman or beastly in their nature at that point. Now, what bearing does this have on Revelation 13? Let's connect the dots. We've talked about the biblical theology of government. What bearing does it have? Well, if we simply take these commands, Revelation 13, for example, out of context by themselves to honor our governing authorities without the nuance that scripture provides, we will end up in the place I unfortunately see quite often. Many Christians become so tied to a particular party or general patriotism that the Christian is unable to see the rebellious nature of that political party or the horrific sin committed by the nation states in which they reside, including our own. Or, on the flip side, Other Christians wrongly become so suspicious of the government that they feel like they can whole hock, cast aside the blatant commands of Scripture that we are supposed to start from the standpoint of realizing that government was put in place by God. And this produces a hardened heart that all authority is evil, and we should just carte blanche rage against the government, which is also wrong. Does this possibly describe any of us in this room? Yes, yes it does. I pastor you. It absolutely, both sides, describe a good number of you. So how should the Christian view human government? Through the lens of Scripture, such as what we have in Revelation 13 and Romans 13. The many-headed monster of the state was the outgrowth of the good measure God put in place to keep order in human society. But if it does not stay subject, if government does not stay subject to Christ as ultimate authority, it becomes a beast that has behind it the original adversary of God. And so I would ask you, is there a nation state in existence that is wholly submitted to Christ? Literally no across the entire world. So we know that backing them, there is whom? The dragon, including our own government. It is the ultimate sovereignty that is described in Romans 13 that allows a state to even exist. But on the ground, in the midst of the playing out of that power, the state oversteps its bounds and ends up existing in the power and authority of Satan which is where it is the duty of the Christian to stand firm and say, no, you have gone far enough. To give carte blanche submission to any entity of authority that God has put in place without a healthy system of checks and balances is to invite abuse by the dragon. We should not tolerate it when fathers in families, elders or pastors in churches Or government entities overstep their God-given authority to such an extent that they act against God's ultimate law, and they act as if they are their own judge. So friends, it takes nuance and discernment at every turn. Do I obey the government because it is from God, or do I push back because it is currently empowered by Satan? Friends, what I need you to hear is, Those are the wrong questions. Because I can guarantee that the first century Christians, as they were watching their brothers and sisters get beheaded by the Roman state, had the same questions. And that is why Peter and Paul and John write to address this issue. And the question they ask is far more profitable. Let me phrase it this way. Christian, no matter where you find yourself in time or space or situation, How can you honor Christ as ultimate king? That's the question we need to be asking. When we're voting, when we're protesting, when we're not protesting, when we're existing in everyday life, when we're listening to Fox News, when we're listening to CNN, Christian, no matter where you find yourself in time or space, how can you honor Christ as king? You see, Christ has given the dragon a fatal blow. That's what we read in our text in Revelation 13. It says, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Christ has given the dragon a fatal blow, and it's only a matter of time before he, the dragon, fails completely. So Christian, Can I beg of you, please, stop being surprised that evil gets voted into office. Stop being surprised. Stop being surprised that nation states rage against one another and rise and fall. That's what nation states do. Because they're beasts. Beasts devour. But Christ, he will reign supreme forever. And the beasts will be slain. John provides this confidence by picturing the beast with a mortal wound here in verse 3. And with the backdrop of chapter 12 and the woman who gives birth to the Christ, this should remind us of the promise of God after the fall in the garden that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent while the serpent would give a seemingly mortal wound to Christ. Christ wounded Satan because he bound him with the gospel and declared in that moment on the cross that his time was limited. But Satan seemed to have healed because he is still operating as prince of the world. He seems to have healed. John is using this particular language because he is showing that Satan has always been the counterfeit god and wants mankind to buy into a counterfeit savior. Guess who the counterfeit savior is that the dragon is holding up? The state, the government, it. It will save you, trust it. The beast's head was mortally wounded at the cross and yet the world will say the cross was ineffective. Because Christianity may have mortally wounded Rome, but Rome was rebirthed into Western civilization. See, government is here for us, the world will say, but Christ has never returned, and therefore only the government can be trusted to save us. The earth marvels at the strength of the state, and so they follow it, hook, line, and sinker. The state becomes the world's provider and the world's savior. Friends, how do you think about state, the state, and politics? Do you personally automatically discard the authority of the state without a thought? Do you think about it too much to the point where you think the answer is only found in different politicians? Do you confuse studying your Bible with staying up to date on current affairs? Do you think the solution is to run away from bad politics here in Oregon to another location where the state there will save me because they're conservative. I think that revelation, as part of Scripture, gives us great understanding at the nuanced approach that we need to take to government. But most importantly, I think it points us to the fact that Christians throughout church history are called to stand firm in the faith no matter where they are, no matter what persecution comes, because we have been sent by God as the prophetic witness scattered as salt and light in a dark world. Friends, Mission Fellowship exists in Oregon not because it is comfortable here, but because you could not ask for a better mission field from which to proclaim the gospel to a lost people. Friends, you can save money on the plane ticket. You're in the mission field. (laughs) We are in one of the most pagan, idolatrous, evil places in the entire world. Be a missionary here. We are meant to meet persecution head on. And to teach our children that part of that prophetic witness is to stand up for God's law through voting, petitioning, running for office, and protesting. Friends, if you're hearing me say, don't be involved in politics, you're not hearing me. Be involved in politics. Vote against abortion because God has so much hate for the killing of babies. Vote against it. Vote against laws that are oppressive to certain people groups. Why? Because it's against God's heart. Vote, protest, do the things that display God's heart. But be sure of this, evil is in the state. Do not be surprised when it rears its ugly head. Because ultimately, salvation does not come through political action. We need to be involved in politics, absolutely. But salvation does not come through political action. It comes through Christ and his death, resurrection, and kingdom that is coming in fullness. The beastly state is the demonically empowered agent of the dragon. It will never save you. Well, this notion of Satan presenting himself as a counterfeit god continues As we next see that, the beast works to subvert the lamb and devour his subjects. The beast works to subvert the lamb and devour his subjects. Let's go ahead and read, starting in verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name is not, uh, has not been written before the foundations of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The leadership of this demonically empowered agent of the state pulls people into following blindly, which then results in worship. The submission, trust, and request for provision moves from the appropriate place, God the Father, to the state. Now we're submitted to it, trust in it, and request for provision moves to it. Friends, just look at the last two years. Oh, we're worried about money. Oh, but we can trust that the government will print more and give us more. They will provide for us. Oh, the government is telling us what to do? We should blindly follow it. That's been the last two years. And people give worship to the government because they believe it is the ultimate power and authority. They even use a phrase that is scripturally bound to the worship of Yahweh alone. Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? From the beginning of God's creation, Satan has attempted to deceive humanity into believing that we know better, ultimately because he, Satan, knows better. And his slanderous, blasphemous statements against God's character have drawn humanity off to follow him, Satan, instead. And as we have grown in knowledge and technology, we have grown more arrogant that what Satan has given us is actually what has saved us. We have convinced ourselves that self-actualization and stepping away from our role as the creation of the creator is what leads to liberty. But it only leads to death and enslavement at the hands of the destroyer. We know that it leads to death because there is only one God who is the one judge, who alone is the one redeemer. Anything not redeemed by him will be judiciously and righteously condemned and destroyed at the judgment seat of Christ. Scripture is so clear on this. Listen to Isaiah 44, 6-8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Notice the similarities to what the world... And the worship of the beast in Revelation 13 is proclaiming. In their fanatic devotion to Satan and his beast of the agency of the state, the worshipers of Satan blindly follow his deception and convince themselves that there is another God other than the one true God. Mankind is deceived because they think they are lifting themselves up and being true to themselves, when in fact they are laying down under the feet of Satan in worship. But the institution of the state... It cannot reform or restore or redeem. It tells you that it can, but it can't. Its attempts to do so only result in perpetuating evil and deception. Take, for example, just one example, our law enforcement system. It has taken away punishment and said, no, what we need to do is we need to restore. That's what the government should do, is restore these poor oppressed criminals. Friends, what in Romans 13 was the state given the agency to do by God? To redeem and restore? No, to use the sword. That is it. And that is why trying to restore criminals does not work. Why? Because their hearts are not changed by the one thing that will redeem them, Jesus Christ. That is why our society is losing right now when it comes to crime. We are so confused, it's not even funny. This is the reality of trusting the beast to do what only God can do. This is from a little later on in the passage from Isaiah, in Isaiah 44, 21 through 23. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. He alone, God alone, is the Redeemer. The government cannot redeem, restore, or reform. What Satan refuses to admit, and his agent of the state refuses to admit, is that all of their power and authority will ultimately be destroyed. We see this throughout history, that nation-states do not last. God humbles each of them and will ultimately humble and remove all of them when he rules over all. Just think of how God dealt with nation-states throughout the history of Israel. He would use them in their deception as swords of his holy wrath but then he would humble them because they too were idolatrous. Think of Assyria and Babylon, for example. The adversary of God who has set himself up as a counterfeit God has empowered his beast as a counterfeit savior. And that is why the state proclaims for itself what only Jesus, the true redeemer, can claim. In doing so, it is uttering the haughty and blasphemous words that John pictures coming from its mouth. The state is calling itself the savior and the king. But we know that only one person can hold those titles. These deceptions and blasphemies are the weapon of our adversary to draw the unaware and hardened of heart into his power for the time that God has allowed it to exist. Which is what is pictured here with the 42 months. A set time that God allows Satan's agents to work and persecute his people. But a time that will eventually come to an end. As the state or any God ordained authority figure usurps power and authority that is really only held by God, it is blaspheming the authority and character of God. It is blaspheming his name. But he doesn't stop there. The demonic agent of the state also goes on to blaspheme God's dwelling. And a quick look through the prophets of the Old Testament will tell you that God does not take kindly to any group that attacks his temple. But remember, we are in the new covenant and beginning with Christ's enthronement and the pouring out of his holy spirit his spirit now dwells within his new covenant community known as the church and every local expression of it we dear friends are Christ's earthly temple where heaven and earth meet now john makes this clear when he says that satan blasphemes notice this the name of god and his dwelling that is he says those who dwell in heaven. This is continuing the imagery from chapters 11 and 12, especially the beginning of 11, where the temple is the image of the protected yet persecuted people of Christ. It is through this blasphemy against God's people that Satan makes war on the saints of the church and attempts to conquer them. When the institutions of the satanically empowered state and false church bring deception into the midst of the true saints, They are attempting to conquer Christ and his kingdom. It is in the midst of this deception that John and Jesus, who is the ultimate author of Revelation, is calling the saints to stand firm in the truth of Christ's reign and word. Eight times in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, at the conclusion of every mini-letter to the church, the saints are called to conquer. And when they do so, they will be rewarded. In regards to the nations of the world, it says that the Christians who will conquer will, notice it, rule over the nations with Christ. And it says this in Revelation three twenty one through 22. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now in Christ, this truth that we reign and that we have conquered the beast and the dragon this truth has been inaugurated in Christ because of the cross and resurrection. But in the meantime, in the remainder of the church age until the return of Christ, and the resurrection of the dead and the judgment, God has given the world over to their worship of their God. That's why it seems like we are being conquered. And so the practical nature of this truth is that as heaven dwellers, those who are in Christ, We exist as outcasts and exiles among earth dwellers and subjects of Satan's beast. And friends, we will still be that even if we move to a locale that has conservative politics. We will still be, even there, outcasts and exiles among earth dwellers. And we look on in disbelief at the fact that every tribe, people, language, and nation worship this beast without a second thought. But we are those who know the truth of what we have been taught in this revelation of Jesus as King. For we have seen the vision of the Lamb. Remember the song that was sung in worship to the vision of the Lamb. Worthy are you, Christ To take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Friends, if you feel like there's this raging and argumentation going on here with the beast trying to have his own group of people from every tribe, language, and nation, and Christ's kingdom doing the same, then you are accurately picturing what's happening. But we will not fear, nor will we back away from what we know to be the truth of God's word, because Christ has set us free from the deception of the world and has eternally written our names in his book of life so that even death will not concern us. For Christ has assured us that because he took our place on the cross Because he was our substitute and endured the wrath of the full triune God upon himself, and because he rose in victory over that sin and death three days later, we are conquerors. We are sinners, yes, who were enslaved in sin and deceit and the slander of the enemy. But we have been set free to worship Christ as the son of man who conquers the beast. Because if you continue on in Daniel 7, where we were earlier in the sermon, it moves from the beasts into the vision of the Son of Man being enthroned over all tribes and languages and nations. And friends, that is picturing the cross and the resurrection and the building of his church. We, therefore, can stand firm in the promise of Christ from Revelation, specifically 3, 5 through 6. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are secure in your salvation, and even the beast cannot rip it from you. And when the time comes, because it will come, When we are persecuted for stating these obvious, explicit, blatant truths of God's Word, we need to rest on this truth. Because just a few hundred miles north, in a little country called Canada, our brothers and sisters are already being persecuted and thrown in jail for a sermon like this. It is coming, and it is coming quickly. We need to rest on these truths. And this brings us to the final section of our text today, a caution against compromise with the beast. A caution against compromise with the beast. Let's take a look at verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. We have been progressing through the recapitulation of Revelation, and now we are starting to see with more clarity how it is all intertwined. John invokes this same language from chapters 2 and 3 and calls the hearers to pay attention to the caution that is about to come. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. John is crying out to the church, Do not be deceived! As Jesus told Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He's coming after you. Amen. (laughs) From the mouths of babes. As Peter told the church, Satan is roaming about looking for those he might devour. As we heard last week, the dragon desires to flood the church with the same deception that the early church was up against. Those who call themselves Christians, but mock the lordship of Christ over his church. The language here is taken directly from Jeremiah 14 and 15. There, Israel was being disciplined by God because of their worship of pagan idols and their political alliances with people and nation-states that were idolatrous and rebellious toward Yahweh. In large part, the people of Israel, rather than staying true to Yahweh, thought, if we venture into worldly politics, then eventually we'll be saved. You know, places like Egypt, they'll be helpful to us. Does that make sense? That Israel would go, oh, let's go back to the people in Egypt. That's a great idea. When their God, his entire seminal work informing the people was to what? Get them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And yet their solution was to go back to it. And Jeremiah prophesied that the people of God would be disciplined for this action with famine, sword, and pestilence, similar to what we looked at with the judgments in Revelation 6 and 8. But the problem was, was that the people of Israel had lying prophets among them who kept preaching peace rather than a need for repentance. Does that sound familiar? Pastors who preach that God is happy with you no matter if you repent. Now that's a large portion of the American church today, preaching that no matter our sin or dismissal of his law, he is pleased with us because we are his image bearers. And this is the deception that was also happening in Jeremiah's day. Would you turn with me to Jeremiah 14? Jeremiah 14. Starting in verse 11. The Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. He's talking about Israel there. He's telling one of his prophets, don't pray for them anymore. Yikes. Though they fast doing all the religious things, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offerings and grain offering, I will not accept them. In other words, if you went into the people, you'd go, well, they seem pretty much like God's covenant people. They're doing all the things that God's covenant people do, right? But notice what he says, I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore... Thus says the Lord God concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, sword and famine shall not come upon this land, by sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out into the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, them, their wives, their sons, their daughters, for I will pour out their evil upon them. This then became kind of a funeral dirge, if you will, of lament and mourning by the subsequent chapter. And so we see this there in Jeremiah 15. Take a look in verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to me, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. In other words, if they even came back and asked me to, I wouldn't turn back send them out of my sight and let them go and when they ask you where shall we go you shall say to them thus says the lord those who are for pestilence to pestilence those who are for the sword to the sword those who are famine uh, for famine to famine and those who are for captivity to captivity and so john is pulling this idea in to revelation 13 because he's trying to tell the church of that day and this day that if we preach a false gospel that says that God loves us no matter our obedience, we give in and compromise with the dragon and his beast, and we will be taken captive and we will be destroyed. This is not the only false gospel we need to be cautious of. There are many out there. We can easily be deceived by any form of Christianity that makes comfort in this life the goal, or patriotism in this life the goal. Churches that preach that the United States is in God's will are preaching a false gospel. A Christianity that is too closely aligned with the liberality of the world's philosophies is preaching a false gospel. A Christianity that is too closely aligned with the beastly political state, thinking politics is the solution, is preaching a false gospel. We think we can find peace and justice in compromising with enemies of our God, or by voting in just the right politician. But friends, these are only dead ends to further deception and ultimately destruction. God has completed the work of salvation. He's completed the work of redemption in Jesus Christ. There is nothing we can do to earn the grace that was accomplished on the cross. God poured out his grace on us by his sovereign will and calls us to respond by living in an ongoing state of humble repentance and obedience. And as we have the chance to affect our government and our world, we should do so, but never with the expectation that we will usher in God's kingdom or even course-correct that which has been handed over to Satan. Because Scripture is clear, only Christ's return and judgment will bring the fullness of his kingdom. In the meantime, we are to preach the gospel and wait for our good king. And to assist us in this call so that we are not deceived by false gospels, Jesus, through John, calls his saints to endure in the faith no matter what comes. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. He's speaking to each of you. Looking back with hindsight on the history of the church in America, is to see a great blessing in the general religious freedom we have found here to preach the gospel. But the baggage that has come with it is that the church has largely forgotten who it is and what it stands for, and it has allowed errant doctrines and a corruption of the gospel and perverse theological liberality to come into the church unchecked. And the product is that many Christians now believe that somehow, some way, we can get this world to be subject to Christ by reforming the world without the gospel. Friends, that will never happen. Stop trying. We are given the call to call people out of the world with the gospel so that Christ might take hold of them and draw them into his kingdom. Friends, if we could fix the world through simple political changes and reform, why would John need to call the church to endure? If the church could escape difficulty in the world through the unbiblical notion of a rapture, why would he call the church to endure? If it's just as simple as escaping bad politics, why would John need to call the church to endure? We are called to impact the world around us for Christ, yes, but don't be deceived into thinking that anything other than the return of Christ in victory will bring the fullness of the kingdom to bear. Perseverance is practiced and endurance is increased in willingly embracing times of hardship and struggle and persecution. So rather than running from it, we stand firm in its midst and entrust ourselves to Christ who has shown us his trustworthiness through the cross. This morning, dear friends, please hear the caution of John as he warns of the close connection between the devil and the dominion of the state, who will act as the agent of Satan to subvert and attempt to devour the people that have been purchased by the blood of the lamb. And at the same time, be encouraged that those of us who are his, we have nothing to fear because Christ has died for us. Christ has risen in victory for us, and Christ will come again for us. And when he does, he will destroy the nations, even our own, so that his kingdom must reign. So give him your allegiance above all else. Pledge to him your allegiance. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints.